Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. You uh, may have noticed a theme there, something about all people, all nations. This is a pretty exciting message uh, this week as we continue going on in Acts chapter 10. But first, a little bit about, uh, well, not that it matters, but a bit about me. Um, that sounds so weird, doesn't it? Uh, no. No, I can't. Um, When I was about 10 or 11 years old, I had an appointment that changed my life forever. I had no idea how much I needed it. I thought that I was just like everybody else. I fit in. I had pretty good friends. I was pretty good at soccer and all the important things to a prepubescent boy like I was. Then my mom took me to this appointment. Eventually, I was sat down in a chair, a very kind lady, and she asked me, all sorts of questions that I had no idea what the answers were. After a bit, she put this weird device over my eyes, over my face, and then she would twist a few knobs and click a few toggles, and every so often she would say, Jonathan, can you read the top line of the poster on the wall to me? Poster? Now, I'd been in the room for nearly five minutes with this lady, and I hadn't even noticed a poster on the wall. But now, after she'd made all of these adjustments to these weird things in front of my eyes, all of a sudden, I could see it. And then for the next few minutes, she kept asking me, now, which helps you see this more clearly? And she would toggle, turn a knob, this one or this one? And I would answer, but at first, I was just guessing because my eyesight was so bad that I couldn't tell the difference between clear and see. To this point, my eyesight had just degraded to blurry. Now, eventually, I got glasses and I took them out into the real world. And that was when it all hit me. All of a sudden, I could see more than tall green shapes blurring into the blue that I knew was sky. I could see trees. Even better than that, I could see branches and leaves and many shades of green. Lenses changed my life. Now I could perceive the realities in front of me. Over the years, I've had many different prescriptions. They've changed with age to help me adjust to my eyesight and perceive the world more accurately as I needed to. I've had many different frames, worn thousands of contact lenses, but the fact of the matter is that without lenses, I could not function meaningfully in this world. Sometimes they get dirty and they obscure my vision. They get cracked or they aren't balanced properly on my face. My entire perspective can come distorted and shifted. Our perception is not reality. Those green amorphous shapes that I referred to earlier, they were trees, they were not frogs. When our perception becomes skewed, we need an external reference point that is anchored in reality so that we don't get washed away by the tides of our cultural moment, by our experiences, 
or by anything that bids for our attention and our affection. We need an anchor to hold us fast to reality in an ever-changing world, especially in times of tension, change. Now, often God uses moments of tension and transition to bring about the transformation that he wants to bring about in us. And as we approach Acts chapter 10, verses 24 to 48, we're in the middle of three scenes of the act of God partnering with his people to take the message of salvation to everyone to the ends of the earth. As we read so many times from Genesis, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, two weeks ago, Mick spoke on Acts 9, and he reminded us that God does the impossible as Paul and Peter responded to him. Last week, Dirks opened our present act with scene one, verses one to 23, where God brings revelation to two praying people. Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile who's visited by an angel during a time of prayer, and immediately Cornelius responds in obedience. A few verses later, we read that Peter put himself into a position of prayer. Then he's put into a trance and receives a vision from God. It was when Peter pursues God in prayer that God reveals something to him which begins challenging his cultural perceptions and opens him to reevaluating those cultural perceptions according to what God has said in Scripture. Over the last few weeks, as I've reflected on these passages, the Lord has really encouraged me with this. It's when we take a posture of prayer that we position ourselves to be used by God to accomplish the impossible. And what we'll see in this passage is another step in God's faithful fulfillment to reverse the curse of sin and death and bring about blessing and flourishing to the ends of the earth through partnership with his people, even Gentiles. Now that's a mouthful, so let's put some structure to it. Verses 24 to 35, we see revelation. That's the theme of it all. Peter sees what God sees. In verses 36 to 43, we have proclamation. Peter proclaims the good news. And in verses 44 to 48, we have redemption. The Holy Spirit pours out onto Gentiles. So let's dive in. Acts 10, 24. It says, On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he'd called together his relatives and his close friends. Now, what's the first concept that comes to your mind when I say Cornelius was expecting? Is it a bit of blasé as if Cornelius is there in his robe with a pipe reading the sports page of the Roman Times, the last classified ads in the Colosseum Chronicles? I reckon it's more like the other day when we were awaiting the arrival of some friends. One of our twins was buzzing with excitement every 30 seconds looking out the window. If a car drove by, he would say, they're here. Is that them? Now, selfishly, I was living vicariously through him because you know, I was thinking the same thing. I reckon that's the heart and the thrust behind Cornelius's expecting, his awaiting the arrival of Peter. See, he knew that God was doing something. He wasn't sure what, but whatever it was, he wanted to be there for it. And he wanted his relatives and his close friends there to be there with it with him to know and to share in that with him as well. But let me ask us all in this room, are we like Cornelius? Are we confidently expecting great things from God? 
Verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down on his, at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. Now, Cornelius, we know from earlier in the chapter, he was a God-fearing man who likely knew that the scriptures say we are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That, ha- that occurs a couple of times in Deuteronomy. It's quoted by Christ in Matthew 4 and also Luke 4. So why would a God-fearing man who didn't even bow down to an angel when it appeared to him in Acts 10.4 bow down in worship to a person? According to Ben Witherington's commentary, the act of bowing like this is not just an act of worship. There were other cultural applications for it. It was also a normal Middle Eastern form of greeting for a person that you consider to be incredibly important, like a king or someone, perhaps, bearing an incredible message. In the Jewish New Testament commentary, it states that Peter likely misunderstood what Cornelius was doing because Peter perceived Cornelius to be a pagan and didn't consider him to be the God-fearing man that he was. In reality, Cornelius was showing the utmost respect for the person that God had sent with a greatly anticipated message of good news. Continuing on, verse 27. As he talked with him and went in, he found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Just a few things to message, mention from these verses. In the complete Jewish New Translation, it renders this word for unlawful as something that just isn't done. It's culturally taboo, but it's not morally imperative. Now, I grew up in a culture and a family where if you're sitting at the table, dinner table and you want something like, say, butter... You would wait patiently for a lull in the conversation, and then you would ask, may I please have the butter? Grabbed. Go. I was sitting with some Norwegian friends having a meal, and I noticed that they just grabbed. They never stopped to ask or anything. And when I would stop and ask and interrupt conversation, they would look at me with, you know, bit of a, give me a bit of the side eye. It really struck me as odd. And so I asked one of my friends about it later, and I found out that To a Norwegian, it was culturally inappropriate. It was even rude to break up conversation just for the sake of some butter. And it kind of makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Now, looking back at Acts, there are no biblical laws that expressly forbid Jews from associating with non-Jews. In fact, in Leviticus 19, 33-34, it says, When a foreigner resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. The foreigner who resides with you must be to you like a native citizen among you. You must love him as yourself because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the first observation here is that Peter's cultural assumptions are being challenged by the revelation of the word of God. Secondly, God shows Peter how his mentality about non-Jews needs to change. He needed to look at them through the lens of how God looks at them. In the same way, we need to look at others, and we even need to look at ourselves, at everyone, 
through the lens of how God views us. Is there anyone that we would call common, unclean, unlovely, or unlovable? Is there a type of person or a group of people, like the French, that you just don't think about as God thinks about them? Sorry, it was heavy, so I had to throw in a nationality in French. It's what came to mind. Maybe that person's yourself. If that's the case, we need to change our thinking to reflect God's thinking. We need to reflect his love for people to be a light to them rather than refracting his love and his light, bending or distorting or only showing one facet of it. Cornelius had a revelation and he responded. Now let's look at how Peter responded to what God revealed to him. Continues on saying, So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And I ask, why is it that you've sent for me? Peter's response was obedient action. This is what God always calls us to. He blesses us in order to be a blessing to others. But we will only be a blessing through active obedience to God. Hypothetically, what could have happened if Peter had disobeyed or even denied God again? He would have forfeit his opportunity to be a blessing and reverse the curse of sin and death to this group of Gentiles. Friends, we have a responsibility to respond to the knowledge that God has given us in that moment and take action. Believers, when we quench the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we quench the work of the Holy Spirit through us. And as a result, it is, we don't see redemption, but we see a reversion back to the curse in our own lives. And that could possibly further the curse in the lives of others, rather than being a blessing. Perhaps this is one of the reasons that Paul says to the believers in Thessalonica, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the, of, is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Continuing in Acts 10.30, Cornelius recounts his experience to Peter. He'd been in a posture of prayer at the hour of prayer when he received a revelation. He took action invited his family and his close friends. They were all waiting expectantly for, he doesn't know what, but something good. And in the latter end of verse 33, we read, Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear what it is that you, what you have been commanded by the Lord. Remember Matthew 28? We just read it a bit ago. Jesus told his disciples to go make disciples of who? Jews? People that had been baptized by John? No. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. So perhaps with this command in mind, Peter says in Acts 10.34, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, 
Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter finally understands two things. First, God doesn't just love the Jews. God loves everyone equally. And he wants them to be blessed in a relationship with him, just as he told Abram in Genesis 12, 3, when he promised Abraham, Abram at that time, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. How good is that? God loves you personally. Regardless of nationality, culture, race, gender, gender identity, God loves you. Secondly, God's acceptance is not only available to the Jews. God accepts anyone who fears him and does what is acceptable to him in every nation. There's some people that believe the Bible teaches that everyone will be reconciled to God because God's divine love and mercy. This is called Christian universalism. On the other hand, there are those that teach salvation is earned by working hard to do the right things. Some refer to this as work salvation. In honesty, most religions are a form of work salvation where you try to make yourself right with whatever deity you worship. In Peter's statement, God corrects both errors, in the errors in both views. For the universalist view, acceptance is received through reverence of God and by doing what is right. The opposite of acceptance is necessarily rejection. There's a standard by which God judges whether one is accepted or rejected. We'll get to the whole question of what is right in a moment. Is Peter saying that you can earn your salvation here? No. Quite simply, the Jews had tried this for hundreds of years through observing sacrifices and religious rituals. And it had just generated a culture of ritualistic self-righteousness that distorted the good message of God. Now, let me ask, what's the point of a stoplight? Is it to teach us patience? Oftentimes, that's what it feels like to me. But ultimately, it's to help facilitate orderly, efficient travel in a way that protects human life. When we focus on obedience to the laws for us, just for the sake of obeying the laws, we miss their purpose. When we focus on doing the right thing, just for the sake of doing the right thing, we miss the one who defines the right thing and says that the right thing is to be in relationship with him and reflect his nature to the world around us. Or as Jesus put it much more concisely in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So there's this question of what is the right thing that Peter refers to? On John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the crowd asks Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God, the right thing? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in, whom he, in him whom he has sent. In Genesis 15, 6, we read, Abram believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. In Romans 4, 21 to 22, Paul the, the apostle explains this verse by saying that Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. The good work, the right thing, is to believe God's word as Abram did. It's from that position of trust in God that Abram lived not a perfect life, but a righteous life. 
He messed up, he sinned, but he grew and he matured, and he, as he applied his trust in God obediently to his life. His belief determined his behavior. The biblical faith is not merely an intellectual ascent. Biblical faith moves us forward toward a deeper relationship with God. Biblical faith is fixed. It has a fixed reference point. It is not just believing in anything. It is trusting God at his word. So we've seen that God's acceptance is available to anyone who reveres him and trusts in him. Next, Peter outlines the message of what we are to believe. And here we transition from revelation to a specific response, proclamation. Verses 36 to 43, we read, As for the word that he, God, sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day, made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. So the word sent to Israel was not just for Israel alone. Remember Genesis 12, 3, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here's a practical application of that. Whereas personal revelation from God should cause us to take action, Divine revelation through scripture is what must determine our doctrine. If ever there's a question or a seeming contradiction between what God has revealed of himself in scripture and what we believe he's telling us to do when we read scripture or are in a time of prayer, we must always, always, always test those beliefs according to scripture. We must always seek to understand scripture the AIM, the aim of Scripture, the author's intended meaning. And one of the key themes that we see woven all throughout Scripture, all the prophets, as it's referred to here, is this good news. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Just like Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness, God says that when we believe in Jesus, we will receive forgiveness of our sins through his name. Consider what Paul says in Romans 4 and 5. It says, but the words, it was credited to his account, were not written for Abram only. They were written also for us, who will certainly have our account credited too, because we have trusted in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Jesus, who was delivered over to death because of our offenses and raised to life in order to make us righteous. So, 
Since we have come to be considered righteous by God because of our trust, let us continue to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also through him and on the ground of our trust, we have gained access to this grace in which we stand. So let us boast about our hope of experiencing God's glory. Now the terms credited and account here are accounting terms. A person's account needs a positive righteousness balance to be in relationship with God. Sin puts our account not just into zero, but it puts us into an unpayable deficit. There is nothing that we could earn to be at a zero balance, let alone to be in a positive righteousness balance. So Christ has taken our debt upon himself. By his death in our place on the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt. It's in the grave, so our account's at zero. By his resurrection, he defeats death and offers us his very own righteousness. The good news to Israel is for everyone, and it is received by faith. He wants everyone to hear it, which is why Peter says to Cornelius and his whole household, household, he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. There will be justice, which is really good news. Our culture is slightly obsessed with justice at the moment, but it's a justice as we define, and it's often misappropriated. For there to be justice, there must be judgment of injustice and those who perpetrate it. But in this case, it's not a cancellation of persons. It's a cancellation of the sin debt because Christ has taken it on himself. And he who received that punishment is also our judge. Our judge, Jesus, is the one who died in our place. And Paul continues in Romans verses, chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died on behalf of the ungodly people. God demonstrates his own love for us in that the Messiah, Christ, died on our behalf while we were still sinners. Now, Australia abolished capital punishment long ago. But in the U.S., first-degree murder is one of the offenses that can still carry the death penalty depending on what state you're in. So imagine this. You're in America, you've committed premeditated murder, and now you are standing in front of the judge, guilty as charged. But then the judge says, you are guilty, but I've already taken your sentence upon myself. You don't have to bear the penalty. If you trust me, you can get up and walk out those doors, innocent. As unbelievable as that may seem, the illustration pales in comparison to what God has done for us in Christ. As our just, loving, self-sacrificial judge, Christ looks on us and says, you are guilty, but I've already taken your sentence upon myself. You don't have to bear that penalty. I don't want you to bear that penalty. It's not what I created you for. I created you to be my partner in bringing blessing and life to the ends of the earth. And I can do that through you if you trust me with your life. That sounds like a bloodthirsty thirsty judge. 
Does that sound like a God who is just waiting for you to slip up so that he can zap you with lightning or punish you with misery? Now, the amazing story of the Bible is that God, who is our judge, is also our redeemer, the one who makes us righteous. The good news is, as put by Warren Wearsby, the seeking Savior will always find the seeking sinner. Wherever there is a searching heart, God responds. Believers, this is why it's essential that we, as God's children, obey his will to proclaim, to share his word. Because we never know when our witness for Christ is exactly what somebody needs or is exactly what somebody has been waiting for or praying for. So let me ask, where do we stand in relation? He's revealed himself to us in Scripture. I pray through the message proclaimed by Peter and taught here today. Believers, we stand in him, cleansed of our sin. But do we stand in fellowship with him, with a clean conscience, free of guilt and sin, having confessed all to him? Maybe there are some here who haven't placed their faith in him, and if that's you, I'm not here to judge. Christ is the judge, the loving, just, perfect judge. Who, deserve, who desires to forgive and promises to accept you as soon as you put your trust in him. Maybe you're not sure what this trust means. You think that you've done something so heinous that not even God could forgive you. But remember, he did the impossible in the Apostle Paul's life by transforming him from a persecutor of Christians to a prolific disciple-maker. The only sin that God cannot forgive is unbelief. So if that's you, you're not sure what that even entails, love to have a chat. Or you can chat with one of the elders or one of the other members of the teaching team. Feel free to ask. And that moves us on to the final verses where we see redemption, starting in, in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for the baptizing of these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So as the Gentiles hear the revelation of God proclaimed by Peter and believe it, they trust in it, they instantly receive redemption. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Gentile believers expressed in them speaking in tongues and praising God, which is exactly what happened when he fell on the Jews in Acts 2 and the Samaritans in Acts 8. This validates their faith and shows that God's promise of salvation and a right relationship with him is for everyone. Now, we've covered what the filling of the Holy Spirit is in previous sermons, so I won't delve into it here. But what is crucial is this is a pivotal passage in the next outflow of Acts 1.8, which began in Jerusalem, spread out to all Judea and Samaria, and now it kicks off the 
to the ends of the earth era in which we still live today. Now, this surprised the Jewish believers, but I'll let Tony speak to that next week. And we'll quickly look at Peter's response in verse 47, where he essentially says this is undeniably the work of God. Then he commands them to proclaim their personal faith publicly through baptism. We've spoken a few times about what baptism is. Essentially, it's a public identification with a message or a way of life. It represented being dead to one, one old way of thinking and being raised to a new way of thinking and committing publicly to live according to, uh, to, live according to it. So these new believers were baptized not into a set of rules and regulations, but into a relationship in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer and you haven't yet been baptized, I strongly encourage you to consider it. This is not something that you do in order to be saved from your sins, but because you are saved from your sins and you want to proclaim it. Finally, for this chapter, they asked him to remain for some days. These new believers surely wanted to know as much as they could about Jesus, his message of abundant life, and all that the Lord had commanded. And they wanted to know uh, everything they could from Peter. So they asked him to stay. They wanted training. And Peter was perfectly suited to help these spiritual newborns, these baby believers, grow in their understanding in their new life in Christ. Just like a loving parent wouldn't give birth to a child and then leave them to fend for themselves, or dare I say, raise themselves, God, our Heavenly Father, has given his Holy Spirit, his word, and each other to help us grow in spiritual understanding and mature in relationship with him through discipleship. So to wrap it all up, we see God's faithfulness to make salvation available to all nations in Acts chapter 10. He invites the Gentiles into partnership with him to reverse the curse of sin and death to the ends of the earth. And as we apply this to our lives, we can not only see his faithfulness, but in a tangible sense, he wants to partner with us to be his faithfulness as he works in us and through us. God's revelation to Cornelius by an angel and to Peter in a vision, brought them together as they responded to God's leading and changed Peter's perception of Gentiles to rightly align with Scripture. What perceptions or cultural assumptions do you and I hold that are not according to the truth of Scripture? Who knows how God will work in us and through us when we fix our eyes on him and we look at others and we look at circumstances through his perspective? Let's respond to his revelation, to his leading, and trust him for the impossible. Peter's response led to the proclamation of peace with God in Christ to people who had ears to hear. Do you and I have peace with God through Christ? If yes, how does our belief impact our behavior? And as a sign to the Gentiles of the Gentiles' redemption, by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit poured out on these new believers, proving that they too had received peace with God and they were part of his plan to the ends of the earth. It concludes with these new spiritual newborns asking Peter to stay for a while 
and to help them understand and grow. My question is, how are you and I intentionally growing in our faith? How are we helping other people grow in their faith? How are you and I responding to God's revelation by proclaiming his message of peace to be conduits of redemption? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you so much for your word. God, thank you so much for your grace. You are leading, you are guiding, and you are faithful. I thank you for what you are doing in this church, and I trust through this church to, to bring about your glory, your goodness. Lord, I ask that you give us a sensitivity to your spirit, that we would respond to your leading, that we would be constantly putting ourselves into positions of prayer so that we can hear from you, that we can engage with you, that we would be actively looking out for how we can be a blessing to one another. And as we are, that you would be working in us, that you would be working through us, and that Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, that every single individual believer, all the churches of Newcastle, all your believers throughout the world would stand out as these beautiful little kingdom communities, these beautiful pockets of flourishing in this world that so desperately needs life because it is just entrenched in death and enshrouded in darkness. God, let us be your lights. God, let us be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Don't let us hide your light under a, under a bowl. Don't let our sins so easily entangle us but let us run with endurance the race that you have marked out for us, fixing our eyes on you, the author, the finisher of our faith. We pray this for your glory, your honor, and your praise. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.